Today on Ag News Daily. Sustainable Food Initiative happened in response to student demand and interest in food systems and sustainable food systems specifically. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Pearson here on this Friday edition of the Ag News Daily Podcast, coming to you at the end of the last week, full week, really, full work week of 2019. I am joined by Delaney Howell. Delaney, how are you doing today? I'm good, Mike, and I'm excited that it's the last full work week of 2019. Well, that is good. That is good. Like, you got big plans for next week. Christmas time, Mike. Traveling around, seeing the family. All that good stuff. Nice. You got long distances to travel? Not too bad. About two hours is about how far it is to my folks. So hopefully that goes without a, goes with smooth sailing. But it should be because we're supposed to get pretty nice weather next week for Christmas. Yeah, potentially for potential record highs across mm-hmm. much of the Corn Belt as we look towards next week. I believe you guys might be starting that today, Delaney. Is it warm yes, over there? it is. It's really nice out. I was wearing my huge winter coat this morning going to the gym, and I thought, wow, I'm actually kind of hot. Yeah, I think it's the warmer weather is really supposed to hit here in the Chicago area, Indianapolis, tomorrow. And then it's, yeah, a week of warmth. A week of warmth, which I'm sure folks will enjoy. We also are seeing Congress take a break next week as well, Mike. And a couple big pieces of news that uh, we're just going to follow up on here. And that's the first one really is three big things, I guess, that happened this week. We saw President Trump impeached by the House. As we mentioned yesterday on the podcast, we saw Congress pass their fiscal spending bill and headed to President Trump's desk today to sign, as well as the USMCA vote made it through with a landslide vote. We saw, let's see, 200 and looking for the final number here. I'm sorry, 385 to 41 was the final vote that came out of the House. And that is really saying something for such strong bipartisan support. To put it in comparison, the original NAFTA agreement that we saw in 1993 saw a pretty split vote with 234 yay votes and 200 nay votes. So this vote that happened in the House yesterday really is kind of a historic vote. And House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said that they've created a new template for trade negotiations. And it seems that folks in Washington, D.C. are kind of optimistic that this may be the changing tide for voting on future trade negotiations and trade bills. Well, look at that. You can find a bipartisan consensus in D.C. after all, even after such a uh, contentious issue as the impeachment vote. Exactly. Yeah, that is good news. We also had some news today. We're not sure. As we talk, as the trade looks around, as the commodities markets have been trading, the equities markets have been trading, this news story came out, and we're getting mixed uh, reports on it. Uh, Earlier today, President Trump spoke on the phone with Chinese President Xi Jinping. Um, According to Donald Trump, there was a lot of progress made on issues like trade, issues like North Korea and Hong Kong, and President Trump called it a very positive conversation. However, President Xi, during the phone call, accused the United States of interfering in its eternal affairs, looking at the uh, the vote we had here about two weeks ago, supporting Hong Kong, uh, some of the ties we've made about the Uyghurs, the, the Muslim minority in the far 
western part of China, and President Xi is not thrilled with all of that. And uh, so he said uh, – he told Trump that he is deeply concerned about the, quote, negative words and deeds of the United States on issues related to Taiwan, Hong Kong, Xinjiang, and Tibet. And, uh, you know, so there are some hurt feelings there. What does this mean for actually getting close to signing phase one of the trade deal? We don't know. We don't yet know. Um, basically, the no date has yet been established for the signing of that phase one agreement that was released last week. And, uh, you know, that means there is still the potential for it to go awry. So for now, we're all just kind of watching and waiting, hoping these two leaders set a date and they get together to actually get this thing signed in short order. Yeah, from I read a similar article. I'm guessing you found that one on Reuters, and I read it as well today. Um, it kind of sounds like to me, pres or, uh, yeah, President G is basically telling President Trump to kind of back off and, you know, keep your nose in your own business as related to some of those humanitarian issues. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The Chinese government does not like, uh, you know, complaints raised against it, just as I'm sure we wouldn't appreciate complaints coming from the Chinese about, uh, you know, treatments of people. But they definitely are pushing back. And now the question is, will that pushback entail pushing back the signing of phase one or are we still going to get it signed here in, uh, in short order? That is very true, Mike. Well, as we've talked about on the podcast before, and I'm sure, Mike, you talk about it in your speeches as well, but China really is. I think seeing the writing on the wall that even if we are going to repair our trade negotiations with them, they're looking ahead to the future to see where else they can develop new markets to get those things that they need, including ethanol. We saw Chinese commodities trader Kafko, as well as Brazilian grain group Amaji and a Shell Cosan joint venture are working together to build the first corn ethanol plants in Brazil. They are breaking out of the sugar canes biofuel that usually is what brazil produces a lot of their ethanol from and looking to push the envelope here on getting some ethanol plants built in brazil as well as developing infrastructure so that they will be able to export that ethanol and i'm guessing china is wanting to uh, export that ethanol directly to them as well as they're also looking at uh, reducing their greenhouse gas emissions and their carbon footprint and that kind of thing so we'll see you know, it might be slow going here, but definitely going to see a new market or a new competitor developing here for U.S. ethanol production. Yeah. And, you know, that's been on the radar for a little while. And I think the advantages we have in the United States with uh, being able to ship ethanol efficiently, I think is going to keep us in the lead for the time being. But you're right. You know, you hate to see competitors come online. And I think, and I've talked to a lot of folks, China should be a great market for ethanol going forward just as a way to clear up their air pollution. Uh, you know, the smog in Beijing is such a terrible, terrible thing. And, you know, going to an E10 blend in their gasoline would alleviate a lot of that. So, uh, there is some opportunity there long term. There absolutely is. Mike, what else is hopping out at you for end of the year news cycle news? Well, you know, I have uh, raised my concerns that China might not be willing and or able to purchase the amount of ag commodities that President Trump says mm -hmm. they've agreed to in this phase one. However, I, uh, I hope I improved wrong. And the top agricultural consultancy in China came out. This is a company that is private, so it's not the Chinese government. We still don't have any confirmation from the Chinese government about the number of ag 
products they're committing to buy, but um, this JCI consultancy came out and said they do believe that China can fulfill the commitments. Um, they said they, that, 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 JCI strongly believes that China has the ability and the will to fulfill its promise of purchasing $40 billion of ag commodities. So that's a piece of good news. It is. Still Mike. love to hear confirmation from the government, though. It is. And actually, I have a little bit more detailed piece to add on to that. I saw JCI's report. They gave basically a chart of where they think those $40 billion will align as far as dollar purchases go. And they are anticipating about $18.7 billion in U.S. soybean purchases. And that's really the the top driver of this $40 billion package that China is intended to buy. They also had about 2.1 in pork purchases, as well as about 5.9 in other categories, including ethanol. So really interesting breakdown, but it looks like from JCI's forecasts for now, we're going to see soybean, corn, wheat, sorghum, DDGs, pork, poultry, cotton, chicken feet, nuts, fish products, and other commodities exported to China. The one thing they didn't make a specific category for was beef. So it may Mm. be part of that others category, but it doesn't look like they're anticipating beef to be a big portion of that $40 billion package. Okay. Well, you know, we'll see. There's still so much uncertainty with the Chinese uh, protein markets that we could easily see beef slip in there over the next year or two. Absolutely. Interesting. All right. Very cool. That's a nice piece of news. Um, I've got some news coming out of Mosaic, the uh, the largest phosphate producer in the world. They have announced, uh, they've announced actually twice this year that they're cutting production due to the disappointing application season we've seen, both with the spring rains and then, of course, with the fall rains that have really thrown off a lot of producers' ability to get product down on the fields. They said they are cutting back production at their central Florida facility by 150,000 tons per month. Earlier this year, they they cut production back 500,000 tons per month in uh, Louisiana. So by the end of 2019, Mosaic will be mining 650,000 fewer tons of phosphate per month. But they did say they will keep, obviously, all the mines in operation. And as soon as... Uh, prices rise for those commodities, they are phosphate and potash, they will jump back into the market and will begin producing again at full rate. They are looking forward to this year as a positive year. Basically, they're saying soils have become fertilizer depleted. They're at Mosaic hoping for a bump in commodity prices, and they think those two factors will combine to make 2020 a good year for fertilizer application. But I would say if you've got the opportunity to contract uh, some fertilizer, might want to get it done soon as these companies are, you know, putting the necessary pieces in place to uh, see the prices rise a little bit. All right. Mike, do you have any other pressing agricultural news or can I share our fun Christmas end of the end of the year news? You better just go ahead and share it. All right. Well, we had this sent in to us from our good friend, Stuart McCullough, talking about the 12 days of Christmas as it relates to agriculture. Mike, I don't know if you saw this come in this morning from Stuart. but So when you think about the 12 days of Christmas song, can you name all 12, we'll call them commodities that are listed in the song? I, I probably could if I sang the song out loud, but I can't do it on <laughs> command. Lady, why don't you just run through it for us? So basically, all 12 of those commodities, which are the partridge in the pear tree, the turtle doves, 
the French hens, the four calling birds, golden rings, the geese a laying, seven swans a swimming, the maids a milking, ladies dancing, lords a leaping, and finally eleven pipers piping and the twelve drummers drumming. They put together basically a price index of what this would cost if you were to actually buy your lover or your family member, whoever this full package that's saying throughout the song. And so for the total Christmas price index, it'd be about $38,993, excuse me, $38,993.59, which was about a 2%, increase from last year. Hmm, I wonder uh, which which of those items have seen the largest price increase. Where has inflation been on the Christmas index? Uh, we got to go into more detail, Delaney. Well, <laughs> it looks like the golden rings definitely um, were part of that increase. They had about 10% increase from year over year. The other thing that jumped out at me as a surprise was the swans. Apparently, seven swans a swimming would cost you roughly $13,000. And I didn't realize swans were such an inexpensive commodity. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Swans. They're very valuable. Very valuable indeed. But uh, just a fun little piece of Christmas news before we wrap up the podcast for this week. And we're going to be off again as we... Uh, head into the Christmas week. Next week, Mike and I are going to be taking a break from the podcast, so I just wanted to end on something a little more fun and lighthearted. Absolutely, and as we look at the markets, we can end this week on a positive note for corn and soybeans, less so for wheat. Delaney, what do you say? Should we see where things finished up? Let's do it. All right, folks, in the corn market, March corn was up one and a half at 388 even. The May contract up a penny, closed the day at 394 even. In soybeans, January climbed four and a quarter cents to close at 928 and three quarters. March up two and a quarter, finished up at 938 and a half. Chicago wheat did see some weakness, although we did closed well off the lows of the day, actually. The March contract was up two and a, excuse me, down two and a half cents at 542 and three quarters. May down two and a quarter, closed at 546 and a half. Over in livestock, mixed trade in the cattle complex with February live cattle up 17 and a half cents at 125.80. The April down two and a half, closed at 126.7250. In feeder cattle weakness all down the board, the January contract dropped 45 cents to close at 144.2750. March also down 45, finished at 144.3750. And mixed trade in lean hogs. The February contract dropped 30 cents, closed 70.67 half. April unchanged on the day, finishing the week at 77.50. And in the dairy markets, taking a look over at class three milk, we saw the December contract unchanged on the day at 19.36, while January dropped eight to finish at 17.32. With that, Delaney, should we kick it over to today's interview? Let's do it. Well, we are joined today by Emily Pellisier, who is the program lead for sustainable food initiatives at Berkeley Haas. Emily, first of all, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Emily, before we get to talking about the sustainable food initiative that you get to work so closely on, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into that current role today. Yeah, absolutely. So I've always had a strong interest in food and food systems as such a core part of who we are as human beings, um, but also looking at the environmental effects um, of our food systems as one of the most core products and kind of drivers um, within humanity. It's something we all very much rally around and can really um, 
you know, have it be an integral part of our day-to-day lives. Um, so I've been attracted to food for a long time. I got my degree from the University of Oregon in environmental studies and had a sub-focus within food um, and food systems. We had a few specific courses there where I got to explore. And after graduation, I worked in corporate partnerships for a international nonprofit called Net Impact. Um, and that group connects graduate level and undergraduate level business school students with major companies working um, within the sustainable business space. And I specifically got to work with a number of food companies in that role. Um, so everyone from Monsanto and the National Cattlemen's Beef Association to Happy Family Organics and Cliff Bar um, really got to work with a variety of different partners in the food space. Um, so that was kind of a, an introduction for me. This role as the program lead for the Sustainable Food Initiative here at Berkeley Haas is my first transition um, into a role where I specifically get to work on um, food, which is really exciting. So I'm, I'm excited to have that be institutionalized and kind of dig a little bit deeper into these topics. And they are topics that people are very interested in digging in deeper to, especially here in 2019 as we look into 2020. Emily, how do you define, I hear this from a lot of folks out in the countryside, sustainable is a hot topic. How is it <laughs> defined? What is sustainability? What, how do you guys define it in your, your day-to-day goings-on? That's a great question. And at the highest level here at the Center for Responsible Business, we love to draw from the Brentland Commission definition um, which, you know, really is looking to make sus- humanity sustainable for future generations to come and looking beyond um, just ourselves here in this specific generation. I think when we talk about food, um, that takes a whole different lens. And what does it mean to be sustainable within our food systems, you know, on a regional level, on a national level and globally? Um, and that, I think, is a very different conversation and a definition that's still evolving um, I know today we'll hopefully be talking about nuances like organic versus regenerative versus monocropping, some of these different terms that all relate to sustainability within the food industry. And I think we are still figuring that out. Um, that's an important part of the conversation that we want to play a role in. So, Emily, how do you work with, uh, obviously, you're there at a university where you're shaping the minds of young people. How do you work with those students in shaping their ideas and definitions about food and food systems, like things like organics and conventional farming? Yeah, absolutely. And we definitely meet our students kind of where they are. The launch of the Sustainable Food Initiative happened in response to student demand and interest in food systems and sustainable food systems specifically. Um, We have a number of courses that we offer under the guidance of William Rosenzweig related to the future of food systems. Our Food Innovation Studio course, where students get to really explore innovative new ideas and entrepreneurial ventures through a semester-long deep dive project. Um, as well as our Edible Education 101 course, which brings some of the top leaders from the sustainable food world onto campus to speak. That includes Dan Barber, um, Marian Nessel, um, Alice Waters, Michael Pollan, just to name a few folks who have come to campus recently. Um, And so those curriculum and courses are kind of the heart of what we do here. But then we also love to work with our students on what areas are they most interested and excited to dig into Um, beyond just the coursework. So doing consulting projects and experiential work with different food companies from Annie's to Applegate Farms um, to General Mills, obviously a partner of Annie's, um, really hearing what they're most excited about and connecting them with that external um, learning opportunity. Now, you mentioned this program started in 2018, so you're on your second year. How has... 
Is it counted as enrollment, attendance? How, how has participation been over the last two years? What are you hearing from students? Yeah, really amazing. It has completely taken off from students to the administration to our partners. We have just been thrilled and almost overwhelmed by the amount of interest, which is excellent. Um, we, again, did launch the initiative in response to student demand and student interest. HOSS is actually pretty unique, I think, in the business school space in that we actually have a drop-down option where you can express interest in food as you're registering um, and applying to attend here at Haas. And we've heard from a number of students that that's unique. You know, they really care about food and wanting to be getting into this space with that business acumen and lens. Um, and there aren't many business schools out there right now really diving deep on this specific area. Um, so really just hearing that student demand has put a fire under all of us and has allowed us to create this initiative, which provides a hub for all of these different activities to come together, resources for students and advisors, um, many cross-campus partnerships, um, UC Berkeley has a strong history in the food space and a number of different groups working um, on topics like alt-meat to soil health research. And so we can act as a central hub to connect our students and our courses um, with those other um, outlets. How do you go about, Emily, pairing up these students who maybe don't come from an agriculture background? How do you go about addressing some of those issues of maybe the lack of knowledge or or do maybe just you know from an agricultural perspective sometimes we feel that students especially those from bigger cities have maybe the wrong knowledge about agriculture and the food mm -hmm. system how do you go about changing some of those preconceptions that students have maybe coming into your program yeah, great question. That's definitely something we are still trying to figure out and have had some small successes to start. This is a relatively new initiative, and I would put myself in that category coming from Portland, Oregon, and not coming from a specifically agricultural background myself. Um, and the students we have coming in do have varying levels of exposure to the food industry as well as agriculture more specifically, um, whether they've worked in sustainability and dairy or with a major food corporation or company, um, students are coming in with a lot of varied backgrounds. So we're pretty privileged here at UC Berkeley to have a group on campus called the Berkeley Food Institute, um, who we partner with very closely, and they guide a graduate certificate in food systems. Um, and so that really allows students to get beyond the walls of Haas and beyond the walls of the business school and experience interdisciplinary curriculum and exposure. Um, looking at the College of Natural Resources, our Energy and Resources group, as well as bringing students from outside Haas onto campus here to take some of our business school classes related to food and really bridging that divide um, that often exists. And so we've been very lucky to have an excellent infrastructure and a long history of interest in food here on campus um, that's allowed us to make these connections and really get our students plugged into new content. With the launch of the Sustainable Food Initiative, we're also excited to grow those partnerships. Um, we are very aware that we have an amazing sister institution up at UC Davis, um, not far, who we really want to work with and, again, bring some of these conversations to that next higher level and get students plugged into all of the amazing research um, that's happening up there as well. Very cool. Now, one of the things that, again, I hear from a lot of folks who are on the ground, you know, farmers and producers in the ag world, is sustainability has become quite a buzz, and there is all this push for sustainability coming from the the corporate end users of food, and 
farmers oftentimes feel as though they're the ones being put upon, so to speak, by these changes. You know, golly gosh, they don't understand what we're doing down here on the farm. How do you address mm-hmm. that kind of mindset when you're you're pushing for these changes? How do you communicate the importance of what it is you're looking for, and how do you teach students to communicate that to folks who maybe aren't on the same page as you? Yeah, great question. And I think that's another area where UC Berkeley has a unique strength. Um, Here at the Haas School of Business, we operate under a culture um, defined by our defining leadership principles, which are confidence without attitude, beyond yourself, students always, and um, I'm trying to remember the last one, sorry. Um, questioning the status quo. Yeah, so that's beyond yourself, students without, excuse me, beyond yourself, question the status quo, students always, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, I think I got them all in there at some point. Yeah, excuse me, question the status quo, confidence without attitude, students always, and beyond yourself. Ooh, and those four defining leadership principles are really what drive our students and how we shape and form our leaders. And so it allows them to go out into the world with open minds and open hearts to work with different stakeholders, not just shareholders, but stakeholders, um, to work through some of these dynamic systems changes. And so that's something we also see as a priority in the partners that we work with. Um, And we do select our partners carefully to make sure that they are bringing this type of leadership to our students. So I would specifically highlight folks like General Mills, who have really developed a regenerative agriculture self-assessment tool built to have farmers at the heart of um, what it means to have a successful regenerative agriculture system and the economic viability of farmers being a core tenant of what it means to be successful in developing some of these new systems. So that's definitely something we prioritize and look for in partners and in our content. Emily, as you look at the the future and maybe some of the students that you're you've got within your initiative now and some of the students you've had in the past, is there any projects or things that they're working on that have you really excited about the future of the food system? Yeah, I think one thing we have been privileged to work on is with a number of partners who are, you know, working to define this regenerative agriculture space. Um, And we at the Center for Responsible Business here at Berkeley Haas have been able to write a number of case studies, which are academic cases that get published um, through the Berkeley Haas case series and the Harvard Business Review to then go out to classrooms all over the world um, at business schools talking about regenerative agriculture and how companies are figuring out and defining this space. So a couple examples are a case we did with Patagonia Provisions back in 2017 where they're really looking to figure out how they can leverage regenerative agriculture practices as a way to mitigate climate change. Um, But more importantly within that, how they can scale their own operations um, to grow sales and reduce input costs, um, but also really influencing the broader food production system in order to help reverse climate change. Um, On the flip side, we just completed a case with General Mills this fall. I think it went live last week. Um, looking to drive food systems change through regenerative agriculture and how they were able to make that commitment. Last February, I believe it was, they made a public commitment to develop 1 million acres of regenerative agriculture. And as you can imagine, that's a very nuanced decision for a major corporation like General Mills to make, especially when they don't own their supply chain. They're partnering with farmers who are actually going to have to implement these changes. Um, So one unique role we've been able to play is to capture these stories in these academic cases um, so that future leaders can learn from them and kind of capture a very nuanced moment and share that for longevity's sake. Um, Very. 
Sorry. Yeah. No, go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just going to ask, you know, as, as you look to the future, this has been a, a big change over two years. You've, you've really been bringing this program into fruition. Where do you see it going from here? Yeah, we see great potential to continue scaling this program, I think, especially across the UC Berkeley campus um, and hopefully beyond of really helping to define the future of food systems and what that looks like, you know, for us here in the Bay Area, across California, and then nationally as well. Um, and how can we continue some of these trends and really refine them in a way that's implementable for farmers, but also works for companies um, and provides that win-win as we look at the impending climate crisis. Um, and so that's something we're really excited to be playing a role in and helping to define already, but see great potential for these conversations to continue and really bring together the right players um, from, again, farmers and folks in the agriculture industry who we work with directly to some of these large corporations who are um, at the consumer end. Well, Emily, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been really interesting to hear about some of the young people that are going to shape the future of our food system. Yeah, thank you for having me. Happy to share. Well, again, a big thank you there to Emily to wrap us up for the 2019 podcast. I don't think, well, I guess we'll be doing maybe like one more before the end of the year officially kicks off here. But uh, really, it's kind of a wrap for 2019 for us, Mike. Well, Delaney, we'll have uh, one on the 30th. We'll have uh, one on the 31st, right? Are we going to yep. take New Year's Eve off? I mean, I'm probably going to take New Year's Eve off. Isn't Aren't the markets closed that day? Not on New Year's Eve day. They're closed on okay. New Year's Day. Okay, gotcha. So we'll have two before the year comes we'll to an end. We'll have two. All right, listeners. Well, if you get heart sick and you want to hear us, you can always tune into our website at agnewsdaily.com. You can check out all of our past episodes there or just always interact with us on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. Search for Ag News Daily and we'll be there. With that, Delaney, shall we let the listeners go? Let's let them go. 